Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 11 of the Delgado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and how to take action. Today, we have the honor to learn from Rabbi Rachel Mikvah about her new book entitled Dangerous Religious Ideas, The Deep Roots of Self-Critical Faith in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, which is a fantastic resource for all of us who want to be more informed on the ways that our sacred texts have been understood by different religious traditions, as well as the ways these texts have been used to traumatize and oppress marginalized groups. Rabbi Mikvah serves as the Chair in Jewish Studies and the Senior Faculty Fellow of the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary. In this podcast, Dr. Mikvah talks with us about the dynamic nature of biblical interpretation and why it's our job to be self-critical readers. She also shares with us about the challenges of self-directed Bible study, the issues with sola scriptura, and the role of doubt in our spiritual journeys. She also shares with us ways that our Bibles have been used to hurt and victimize women and our LGBTQ community. This is another one of those book discussions that turned more into a spiritual therapy session for me. I'm grateful for Rabbi Mikvah's guidance and help. Here's our conversation. I wanted to ask you, what gave you the idea to write this book? And why was it important for you to address the interpretations in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam? Because that is a lot to cover. (laughs) (laughs) Since it took me a decade to write the book, I discovered that as well. Um, So I teach in progressive and pluralist spaces, and it seemed to me that there was a kind of complacency that all of the perils of religious thought and teaching was somebody, those were somebody else's ideas. And I really wanted to complicate that. Um, So I actually began by teaching a course called Dangerous Religious Ideas, and I asked the students at the outset what they would put on the syllabus before I handed out. Mm. And they would start with um, somebody else's ideas. And in this current climate in which anti-Muslim bias infects even progressive and pluralist spaces, they'd almost always start with jihad. Uh, and then they'd get to other ideas that they associated with extremism. But it only took about 30 to 40 seconds mm. for them to realize just about any religious idea could make the list. You know, they knew that God, for instance, very central to their faith, um, was potentially dangerous, that that over 40 percent of Americans think that you have to believe in God in order to be an ethical person. And if we don't trust each other based on what you believe or don't believe, that's dangerous. Um, And so when we used to have blackboards, if you remember those good old days, uh, or even whiteboards, when actually used to meet in person, uh, very quickly, the board would fill with all of the foundational ideas of faith. Um, And that is why I wanted to engage these questions. The way I go about it has to do with my own training. I am a history of exegesis person. Um, I believe that what uh, what our sacred texts have meant still matter, that they very much shape the unfolding of the way these traditions are lived out. Um, and I believe that embedded there is a rich multivocality and um, multiplication of possibilities of meaning and inside our traditions that sometimes get overlooked or forgotten, that we can recover, that we can be true to our traditions in ways that um, 
people can't even imagine until they start digging. I'm curious about um, what a fascinating class. And I can't imagine like you opening the floor to like have this discussion. <laughs> and as you were there at the whiteboard or the blackboard and people began to like just share out loud, like some of those dangerous religious thoughts, especially the othering. I'm curious about some of the things you were writing on the board and maybe some things that maybe surprised you that you heard. I don't know that anything surprised me. I um trying to remember. I haven't taught it in a few years. I'm teaching it again in the spring. I can let you know. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I really appreciate about, appreciated about your book was I felt like it was a breath of fresh air. Like you were addressing issues that sometimes I felt were in the background, issues that I saw that I wanted to overlook, especially when I read the Old Testament. There's a lot of passages that trouble me, and I'd rather just not even look at them. And the fact that you were very forward in like bringing them to the forefront, like let's talk about these things. And also let's look at how different traditions have looked at these passages. And I think what I also love too, is that you showed the dynamic nature of how we read scripture, like no matter what tradition you're in, even, and I, I come from like a very, like, I grew up in a very, very conservative kind of fundamentalist Protestant tradition, right? So where the Bible is inerrant, totally perfect. It's kind of a one way to read it kind of thing. And when once you start to study the Bible, you realize actually, no, there's a lot more, it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, so I appreciated just all the, the rich history that you went through to go into each tradition. And I was like extremely just impressed, like the amount of research you went through because I come from just one tradition. And so when I, when I kind of look at hard enough to master one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, exactly. And, and I feel like I, I'm learning every single day and the way that you, um, with empathy treated each tradition to really try to understand, um, the different viewpoints and how issues were debated. I just really appreciated your empathic approach. And I wanted to ask you about like, what advice do you have for all of us as we are kind of studying our scriptures? and want to work on having more empathy towards each other, what advice uh, would you would you share with us? Well, I think that empathy is best cultivated in person or in relationship. So um, my first suggestion would be to study it together, um, both with other people in your own tradition and with people in other traditions. There are some formal groups around this. There's a group an international group called Scriptural Reasoning um, that historically gathered Jews, Christians, and Muslims, and now is trying to expand a little bit beyond that into other kinds of traditions that also have some scripture so that can be a, a partner in the conversation. And they study together related texts to, and they try to set ground rules where nobody sort of gets to claim special expertise just because it's their tradition. What, what they're really trying to do is say, how do you hear this text? Um, uh, I struggle with that because I, you know, I, <laughs> I, got, I always want to say, but historically in the community, it has meant this and this and this and this and this. But I, I've learned in scriptural reasoning groups to be a, a little less insistent about that perspective. Um, uh, because it does also matter just how do you how do you sitting down hear this? But Judaism is um, 
is profoundly and consistently in relationship with the tradition. And really so are even um, traditions that don't imagine themselves to be like evangelical Christianity. Um, there is so much that goes into shaping the way they read and hear the Bible. Um, and this idea that we can have epistemic certainty, we can know exactly what it says, and it's always meant this. It hasn't always meant that. Um, and the minute you look at the Christian, you know that. But anyway, your question was about cultivating empathy. And I think the best thing to do is to be in real relationship, be in real contact. Um, the other possibility, another possibility is to, um, to read each other's scriptures and to learn to be appreciative of the special wisdom, the similarities, but also the differences. Um, uh, and there are tools for that. There are, you know, uh, is his name Brian Brown? published a, you know, a sort of a multiple scripture book so that you could look at Torah, you could look at New Testament, you mm. could look at Quran and, and try to understand. They all have study versions of them. There's a wonderful study Quran and Jewish study Bible and multiple Christian study Bibles, both in Protestant, Orthodox and Catholic traditions. So, you know, you don't have to do it without support, even if you're doing it on your own. And I think that we also, you know, when we become more steeped in our traditions, there are things that the traditions teach us that help us cultivate empathy. When I write about scripture and I write about about scripture itself as a dangerous idea, right? Not not the problematic texts inside them, but just the fact that we have this holy text that we've canonized and that this itself is dangerous. Um, but also full of rich possibility, right? That when I talk about dangerous religious ideas, I'm always holding in tension their possibility for good as well as their possibility for harm. So, uh, you know, in some of the rabbinic literature, it talks about making your heart of many rooms um, so that you can hold multiple possibilities of piety, of truth, of goodness, uh, of the possibilities of meaning in your heart. The rabbis understood the heart as a seat of the mind. You have in uh, in Islamic tradition, Intasarab writes beautifully about this, this doctrine of doubt. Doubt is an essential part of faith as it gets unfolded through the history of Islamic theology, and that helps us wield our religious ideas with greater empathy and greater tenderness. Uh, in Christian tradition, uh, Origen um, wrote, he used the word heresy, but in its Greek meaning, it's not about something outside the bounds. It's about a difference of opinion, right? And so he was talking about people come to differences of opinion all looking about really important things, yeah. but all looking to do good, right? And so that, and they're coming through reasonable processes of thought and feeling, they come to a different perspective. Um, and this is, you know, the traditions also have this notion that the multiplicity is divinely intended. In one way or another, they've expressed that in inside the traditions. And I think if we see that we can disagree without um, seeing those who disagree with us as somehow uh 
lacking in any ethical fiber whatsoever, right? And don't yeah. condemn them. Um, that those that also cultivates empathy. That was a long answer. Sorry. I love that. I love that, and I love the um, that allusion to like the heart with many many rooms. Like there's just various ways of kind of looking at something and kind of accepting it. Um, yeah, as I was reading through, um, because I have a Christian background, those sections particularly spoke to me. And I just love how you kind of recounted like the various viewpoints like throughout Christian history, especially in the last, you know, 400 years, like how much things have changed and arguments. And these are all people who really took the Bible seriously. Like they, re they really wanted to get the Bible right. And you have things like Luther wanting to get rid of certain books of the Bible, right? Uh, that he just didn't like them, right? So you just have like, and for me, it's very humorous now. It's like, no, they they were taking the Bible seriously. They really wanted to get this right, which means that they had to maybe exclude certain books or look over certain passages that maybe didn't align with their theological viewpoints. And that's what makes the Bible, I think, like such an adventure, if you could take it that way. Like, look, there's an adventure in every single denomination. Every single tradition has their own adventure with the Bible. And I love that you're kind of pointing out like this, there's like that balance of like, yes, there's like this dangerous idea that you're saying that this is sacred scripture from God. That's a dangerous idea right there. And then from that, yes, there is like these beautiful aspects of scripture and things that can comfort us in our various trials and tribulations. But then there's also these very, very harsh words and very dangerous ideas that have excluded people, have hurt people, uh, traumatized people. And um, the one thing that I struggled with while reading was like, sometimes I feel like as we read the Bible critically, we don't really, it's hard to kind of come to terms of what it actually means for us, like as a religious person, right? There's like that balance of like, you're reading the Bible critically, but also you're trying to get some sort of devotional element. Right. And I hope I'm phrasing this right. I don't know if I am. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to explore that a little bit in the book um, because, look, historical critical theory solves a lot of Scripture's problems. We can look at the ideas contained in Scripture and say, oh, those were biases of the peoples of the time when the Scripture was redacted, right? When the Scripture was edited, the, these, you know, bias against uh same-sex love, for instance, that that was a bias of that time and place. And so we don't have to accept that as scripture because that's a, a historical critical um, limit, you know, limitation on, on the power of scripture to uh, guide our lives today. At the same time, if you then contextualize all of scripture within this historical critical reading, you do lose a little bit of the power of scripture to command the soul. And, um, and so when I teach Hebrew Bible, um, at the seminary, uh, we grapple along the way with how is this sacred text? And I think that for, you know, if it isn't the inerrant word of God, but rather a record of people's ongoing efforts to respond to the divine call, that itself is a sacred record. It's not inerrant in the same way that one might wish your scripture to be, but it is still a sacred heritage that has to be honored, studied, um, and really, 
attitude, not through adding scripture, but through adding layers of interpretation and how you, how we collectively embody these values in our lives today. But it is a tension. You know, I think about the danger of religious ideas. Like I think about the power of fire. It's dangerous, but we can't live without it. Right? in all of its forms, it's dangerous. Um, you know, whether we're talking about electric power or nuclear power, you know, all of these fires um, have the potential to accidentally or purposefully be destructive. But we need this power. And so I spend a whole chapter kind of unpacking all of the things that that all, all of the reasons why religion is such an important part of our history and our culture and of individual people's lives. As you read the Bible for yourself. Like you have just like this amazing grasp of history, of how these verses have been interpreted throughout the ages. You have the, the you have the cultural insights, the language insights, and when you are approaching yourself, like you have a totally different lens than I do. Like I don't have any of that, right? So so sometimes I feel like I struggle, like, and sometimes I feel kind of defeated. Like, what's even the point of me even trying? to even read this when I don't even have the cultural background, the understanding of these texts. And I can feel sometimes very defeated when coming to scripture. I can appreciate that. I mean, I come from a tradition, Jewish tradition um, says uh, that you should get yourself a teacher and find yourself a study partner, right? That, uh, tradi- in Jewish tradition, we tend not to study our texts alone in part because they need Guidance. We need guidance in studying them, and also because um, we need support. Right? We need people to to question us, but also to hold us up when we're struggling with something that that's very difficult for us. Um, nonetheless, there are certainly within Christian tradition, Catholic and Protestant, um, some really compelling textual st- solo textual study practices, right? Of of making this a regular part of your daily meditational life. Um, and I think that, um, that they can both be helpful, but, but when you, when you do recognize that there's something that we're, you're struggling with, I mean, you, you created a podcast so you could talk to people about some of your problems with scripture, right? I think that's brilliant. <laughs> I mean, that's that's exactly what this is. <laughs> I struggle. <laughs> I struggle so hard, and um, it's it's a way for me to get other perspectives. But I feel like one of the problems with my own Protestant tradition is we're so encouraged, especially that doctrine of sola scriptura, right? Which is has been in some ways very harmful because it's like, oh, well, I just have my Bible, and whatever I get out of it, I get out of it, and that's a very dangerous idea because you can get a lot of very complicated and dangerous um, commands out of the Bible. Um, there, there is the beauty part of like, oh, look, we're encouraging you to read the text. That's a good thing. But the dangerous part comes in where if we don't have the guidance, like you're saying, like someone else to come alongside you and to, to dialogue with you, to ask you the questions, to make you think critically, and also to understand that there's different viewpoints that are out there that are... Um, equally good and should be considered like I guess that's the part where I kind of I struggle in my own tradition there like this kind of sola scriptura kind of thinking sola scriptura interestingly was not intended originally 
um, as a go off by yourself and study the Bible. It was intended to mean that we don't need the Roman Catholic Church to tell us what the scripture means. Um, and, uh, and as it increasingly became a sort of private, everybody gets to decide what scripture means. Of course, there were new hierarchies that resisted the Protestant hierarchies of ministers and bishops, et cetera, resisted this idea that, well, any, anybody can read scripture. But nonetheless, it did embed itself in Protestant culture. And I think that if we can engage even in an exercise like Sola Scriptura with the idea of self-critical faith, then then you can read and you might have a, not a dangerous religious idea, but you'll recognize its potential both for goodness and for harm. Um, and you'll hold it lightly in your heart and maybe talk about it with other people and, you know, and come to some deeper wisdom around it. Yeah. And I, and I love um, the phrase self-critical faith. Like what, what a great phrase, a like great wording to put to this idea of like how we studied our Bible to be self-critical. That's something that I, I wish that I had like learned earlier in life to like take the Bible critically. Because I think that my my problem has been that I just want to take it devotionally. Like I just want to read it, get some sort of spiritual value out of it and move on. Um, instead of like, what is this text actually saying? What is the, um, if possible, the authorial intent? What was actually intended by the author? What was the motivation there? Even though so many times I feel defeated, Rabbi, I feel um, like it is a mystery that I want to pursue. It is, you know, our sacred texts call to us. There is, for some, the word of God, for others, this record of human striving to respond to God's call. Both of those are utterly compelling as, as texts that we would want to continue to engage with. I remember what I was trying to think of earlier, and that was, um, one thing I sometimes recommend to people who do have long-standing devotional practices around the reading of scripture is to keep an interpretive journal. Um, and when they come back to a passage a second time around to see if what they take from it is different, to, to begin to recognize perhaps a dynamism even in their own interpretation and relationship with a particular passage. And, um, I mean, one of the things that I point out in the unit that addresses scripture in the book is that all of the traditions historically, this is not a modern radical idea, but the traditions historically recognized multivocality. They recognized um, the, the role of doubt in faith. They recognized uh, the need for accommodation, right? That God would speak to people in their context, in their time, in a way that they could understand. And so those things might change even in an inerrant word, right? This is all long before modern historical critical thinking about scripture. They understood, um, you know, change and, um, over time and, uh, a, a host of ideas about scripture that sometimes surprise people that these are embedded from the very earliest transmissions of our sacred texts. I love that you mentioned and you highlighted in your book, uh, the, the role and importance of doubt in faith. And I think that's one of those things that 
uh, for a lot of us struggle with because whenever we begin to doubt either the Bible or doubt our belief in existence of a God, that sometimes can shake us to our core, especially in those like dark nights of the soul where we're beginning to question, what do we really think about things? So I'm, I really appreciate you bringing that, also surfacing that, because that's something that I've struggled with as well, the doubt. And I think that it's beautiful when we see doubt expressed in the Bible. Like I think of like David and like the Psalms where David questioning or the psalmist questioning, where are you like in this situation? And sometimes those are the passages that I will cling to because that that's how I'm feeling. The Psalms are very evocative um, that way uh, because they're capturing the human response to often very dramatic moments. Um, and sometimes within a single Psalm, you can see the transition from the articulation of doubt and fear in the process of drawing close to, to the divine may not resolve the problem, but nonetheless, you know, brings one back to the path, to the journey of faith. And, um, and those Psalms are particularly evocative. We see it also, you know, sometimes in, in biblical narratives, we see, um, uh, human characters who don't, uh, behave perfectly. Um, they're flawed on purpose, uh, so that we can see ourselves in them and, uh, and their journeys also, you know, have the, vicissitudes of faith um, and doubt. We also use doubt around not only faith, but about our grasp on truth, right? The traditions understood that our ability to master absolute truth is limited, that that, that really belongs to God, um, and that we really are looking for truths to live by rather than absolute truths. And we have these mechanisms in our traditions where we argue about them um, in order to try to draw as close as possible to them. Um, but we also argue about what is the nature of truth inside the tradition. So um, in Jewish tradition, it's interesting because there are several approaches to what the role of this dialectical argument that's very significant in rabbinic texts is, is it to draw closer through argument toward God's teaching, towards the real meaning of divine teaching? Is it that we, through this argument, are authorized by God to constitute the truth to live by? Not an absolute truth, but the truth to live by. Um, uh, are, you know, did, um, anyway, so the, the the process of self-critical faith also helps us to recognize that even the things that we are certain must be true are only true to the extent that we can perceive it and that that's limited. And I think what's hard is that as we are all in this pursuit of truth, as we read our Bibles and, and are exploring different interpretations, and we're all focused on the same thing. We're all looking for kind of truth. What is this text saying? And also, what are some truths that I can take with me on my journey? Like, I guess as we're pursuing this truth, sometimes that means we're going to be leaving our faith tradition. We might be moving into another faith tradition. And that can be very, very hard as we are beginning to kind of maybe leave a certain community that maybe we no longer feel like 
that community no longer speaks to us anymore because now we've found, for example, in my own journey, uh, being raised in a very, very conservative fundamentalist church where we didn't have women pastors, like that was like unheard of, right? We also didn't have anybody in the LGBTQ community in our churches, like it just was frowned upon. And as I began to evolve and learn, I had to move out of certain traditions. And I guess like my question is like, as we are in pursuit of truth, can you talk about like those kind of faith transitions that happen along the way that, because they're very, very hard to kind of just leave. You're leaving a community too. You're not just leaving that kind of faith practice. You're also leaving that group of people. I think that a lot of the room for exploration, doubt, questioning, challenging is inside the traditions where we exist. I don't think we have to leave just because something is a problem. Um, but uh, there are there are times when individuals feel that deep down at their core, they're no longer in the in a spiritual home. Right. And um, I think that we that there are different ways in which the traditions affirm our capacity for moral reasoning, right? Limited though it may be, um, it's essential. And so um, in Islamic tradition, there's a notion of fitra, that we're all born with uh, a capacity to know God and for moral uh, striving. Uh, basically born good. Um, and, uh, in rabbinic thought, there's a notion, um, well, well in terms of an, a more interesting parallel to Islam, um, we are born with both a yetzer hara and a yetzer tov with a, an instinct for good and an instinct for harm. And we choose between them in every moment, mm. um, sometimes consciously and sometimes without even recognizing it. And, um, but what I was going to say is there's this notion of rabbinic thought uh, called lifnim mishorat hadin, where sometimes we'll go through the the hermeneutical process of interpretation as we've inherited it, and we'll come to an answer and we'll think, wait, that's not right, mm. right? And so that we actually have to exercise immoral judgment even over this sacred process and over the sacred text to say... No, the underlying religious values that stand at the core of who I am mean that it has to be built on this value. So, um, you know, I think they did something very radical, for instance, uh, with eye for an eye, which by the time the earliest rabbinic text was edited already for a long time had clearly meant restorative justice, not retributive justice. You compensate the person for the loss of the eye, for healing, for the cost of healing, for the lost job, lost wages, lost permanent wages, um, and for pain and suffering. So it's a, it's a restorative justice process. I think it's a radical thing to do with the text, uh, because they understood at its core that justice couldn't be accomplished by reading the text literally here. And I think that when we get to those core judgments, um, where we know it can't be X, if the community really stands over against us at our core. Um, uh, sometimes we do have to leave. We have a lot of LGBTQ identified uh, 
what I call you know spiritual refugees from evangelical tradition. They love their faith. Um, they love many things about their community, but either because of how they themselves identify uh, or because they identify as as deeply committed allies um, with the LGBTQ community, they cannot uh, exist in a community that judges them so harshly. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And I'm wondering, like, what are some things we can do to be good allies to help our LGBTQ community who have been traumatized by some of these churches, by some of these interpretations of the Bible? What are some things we can do um, to love and also be more inclusive? I think that there are, you know, large numbers of religious communities out there that in the United Church of Christ language are open and affirming, right? And they make it clear that you are welcome here. Come as you are, um, whether you're LGBTQ identified or any other identity that puts you on the margins of some religious community, you are welcome here. I think that in order to magnify that blessing, that there are spiritual homes, um, if people can find their way there, uh, is to be more vocal in the public square. And I deal with this, uh, in the book also. You know, what is the role of religion in the public square? And I was raised in Rawlsian tradition that said you shouldn't argue policy positions based on religious values. You should use a common ethical language, a secular ethical language. But ultimately, what that ended up doing was ceding the public square to religious voices who were making religious ideas more dangerous and more harmful, marginalizing people, um, stripping them of their rights, their autonomy. And I think, if for no other reason, um, religious progressives need to be more vocal in the public square to make it clear that there is more than one religious position, more than one authentic, serious, committed religious position on reproductive justice, on the environment, on LGBTQ, on all kinds of things where religion has been conflated with some sort of strangely politically conservative identity. Um, and we just need to be more more visible, more vocal in order to protect those who haven't yet found their way to a new spiritual home. I want to get your advice for like moving forward, like with our Bibles, your your counsel as a rabbi for us to take the Bible critically, to take it seriously, and I guess just need help finding our way through it. Well, I do think that study Bibles or the study Quran, that these are tremendously valuable tools. I also think that it's interesting to watch people, I mean, the certain kind of struggle that you've been describing, there are particular books that are really good with certain kinds of struggles. So for instance, James Kugel, who's an Orthodox Jewish Bible scholar, um, wrote a book, I think it's just called How Do We Read the Bible or something like that, um, where he he can cite you all of the evidence and does sort of book by book do historical critical work. And then at the end, writes a chapter about, and how do I deal with this as a man of Orthodox mm. faith? And ultimately I'm trying to remember the chapter. He, it, it's a kind of unsatisfying chapter because <laughs> he's still grappling with it, but, but to watch him grapple with it, mm. right. Who spent his life toiling in the study of these texts um, can be powerfully 
illuminating and supporting for somebody who's just beginning, but also struggling. So that, you know, it's good for that kind of struggle. Someone who's struggling with the whole idea of historical critical thought and how do you, you know, what, why was he persuaded that these things are true about the texts, right? That these really are human texts and, and, and where does that leave him in his faith? There are other books that, you know, deal with what are sometimes called clobber texts or texts of terror, mm-hmm. right? That the particular texts that are so damning to or have been used to condemn uh, same-sex love and relationship um, or the the texts that are full of violence against women, right? Um, some of which have been used to justify it, violent, ongoing violence against women, uh, even though in the instances that I, you know, the worst text that I think of when I think about violence against women in, in, in Hebrew Bible, um, they are not prescriptive. They're descriptive of a broken world, right? These are things that happen in the breakdown of society. Uh, whether you're thinking about what happens to Lot's daughters, uh, or you're thinking about the concubine that gets cut up into little pieces. These, what happens when societies collapse is that they take it out on the vulnerable. And so it's not meant to be prescriptive. It's meant to be cautionary. But anyway, study Bibles, um, and then books that, that give you particular tools. I'm hoping my book can be one of those tools. For sure. For sure. And I, and I think one of the, like I was saying in the very beginning, like one of the things that I found just of tremendous value is your own empathic reading, the way that you wrote um, to share these different perspectives. Your empathy comes clear. And and I'm like, I want more of that empathy. I want to have that type of understanding of scripture. And um, also I think your lens of love, like as you're reading these texts, like how can we be more loving with our interpretations? So I found, I found you as like, I found it extremely helpful it's definitely going to be one of those books I want to return to again and again um, as good reminders. And I feel it's almost like a uh, a spiritual director in a book to help us. <laughs> <in the text. laughs> That's great. If I could be that, I would be more than more than satisfied with the work, that, even though it took a decade. Um, <laughs> I do want to share, perhaps this would be a good thing to close on. You were thinking about, you know, all the problems with scripture. It made me think about a poem. It's the only poem I cited any length uh, in the book. It's by Yehuda Amichai. And he was thinking the way that, you know, what, whether it was Luther who wanted to edit scripture and get out some of the stuff he didn't like, which actually was a much older argument um, in Christian thought about whether Hebrew Bible should even be scripture at all. And, you know, and which parts and how do you think about the the first testament um and um uh and that we now edit the bible often subconsciously we just forget certain parts um or we just don't you know when so in many synagogues you'll study by the weekly tour portion and it moves all the way through the calendar year um, and there are people just stop showing up when you get to Leviticus. <laughs> you can just pretend it's not there. Right. <laughs> um, but Yehuda Amichai writes this poem where he tried to edit scripture, right? Tried to make it a better good book. And this is, this is his poem. I filtered out of the book of Esther 
the residue of vulgar joy. And out of the book of Jeremiah, the howl of pain in the guts. And out of the Song of Songs, the endless search for love. And out of the book of Genesis, the dreams and Cain. And out of Ecclesiastes, the despair. And out of the book of Job, Job. <laughs> and, and from what was left over, I pasted for myself a new Bible. And now I live censored and pasted and limited and in peace. She basically took out that everything that is intellectually suspect, emotionally um, difficult, and he's left with something that doesn't speak to the wholeness of the human experience. What is compelling about our texts is that they do dig uh, into the light and into the dark of the human story. And I think we need them to help us do that. And if we can do it with a self-critical lens, then they'll do their most sacred work. That's beautiful. And what a, what a way to close. I love that poem. I need to print that out, have that on my wall. That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it's very funny, too. <laughs> it is. He, I actually had the privilege of studying with him for a semester when I, my first year in rabbinical school. Oh. There's just so much um, uh, expertise in Jewish thought in Israel. The first year of study was in Israel. So you have all of these world-class scholars, you know, Amazing. sometimes you know, needing an extra gig. So he taught at the seminary um, as an adjunct, even though he was this world-class poet. And um, so I, I can I can read it with his voice in my head. Are there are there any like after studying with him? Are there any like things you'll always remember? Things that he shared with you? that have always stuck with you and like reading the Bible or just anything else? Um, <laughs> well, uh, well, you, you would I do have sort of general ideas that just feel like they come from him, but I do have also have from my years in rabbinical school, certain teachings that I like sentences I hear mm -hmm. from particular professors. So I had this, um, uh, a Hungarian um, immigrant professor of Midrash. Um, and uh, he taught this narrative that's in the Midrash about a rabbi who has to hide from the Roman authorities because they're they want to find him and execute him. And so he goes into a cave and he just studies the whole time and it becomes this phenomenal scholar. When he comes out into the world, like he can't, you know, the, the world is just too yeah. Im imperfect for this mind that he has cultivated. And everywhere he looks, things start to burn up. And so the Midrash, essentially, he goes back into the cave because he can't exist out here without being destructive. And so I hear my teacher saying, Shimon, go back into the cave. <laughs> and, and to me, that is one of those you know, guards against wielding my knowledge, whatever it is, mm -hmm. in destructive ways. Um, and I think, Rachel, go back into the cave. <laughs> <laughs> I love so, that. That's um, great. So that's one. The other, another one I remember, I actually wasn't in the class, but it became such a, it was in a different uh, different group, but um, the, a teacher of Mishnah was exasperated because his class had a bunch of clowns in it. <laughs> So he 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 just threw up his hands. He said, you know, the Talmud is the, the Mishnah in this case, the, but he was saying the Talmud's funnier than you are. 
And he brought this text where about how you could use an elephant for the side of a sukkah. <laughs> and he was just trying to show that the Talmud was funnier than these class clowns. So I don't, that one stuck too. <laughs> well, Rabbi Mikva, thank you so much for, for sharing your insights with us. Thank you so much for your research, 10 years writing this very thought-provoking book. And like I said, it's going to be a helpful guide for me in the future. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Rabbi Rachel S. Mikva. To learn more about these ideas and a deep dive into the ways to understand the dangerous texts in our Bible, make sure to read Dangerous Religious Ideas, The Deep Roots of Self-Critical Faith in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And next time, we're chatting with Dr. Matthew Thomas about the different ways that Protestant and Catholic theologians interpret Paul's ideas on the role of works and faith in salvation. Dr. Thomas's new book is a scholarly examination of the early church's viewpoints on Paul's letters and his views on works, the Ten Commandments, and doctrine of justification. It's another discussion showing the diversity of thought on salvation within Protestant and Catholic theology. We ended up chatting for almost two hours, so I'm dividing up that next conversation into two separate episodes that come out next week. And before we go, I want to share three quick takeaways from our discussion with Dr. Mikva, as well as from reading her book. Number one, developing a self-critical faith and questioning our sacred texts is key to spiritual growth. In her book, Rabbi Mikva says, We are inescapably affected by sacred text and the ways it has been understood. Our religious ideas of today are shaped by our spiritual genealogy. In exploring the surplus of meaning embedded in scripture and tradition, expanding our understanding of the past, we also open new possibilities for the future. Number two, biblical interpretation has evolved over time by different religious traditions, and there isn't one way to understand our sacred books. Rabbi Mikva says that criticism is not blasphemy. Dislodging assumptions about meaning and the history of interpretation resists the binary reductionism of the digital age that allows people to decide that religion is all good or bad. And number three, find ways to support and love marginalized communities who have been traumatized by certain biblical interpretations. You know, sadly, our sacred texts have been used to victimize and hurt our LGBTQ community and used to oppress women. We also need to remember how the Bible was used to endorse slavery in America. It's no wonder why many people have no interest in reading the Bible or even finding a spiritual home. Let's work on developing more empathy for those who have been hurt and traumatized by the Bible and find ways to love those groups more. So that leads us to this week's question. Rabbi Mikvah talked with us about the ways to cultivate empathy for other people's viewpoints on the Bible. What religious tradition would you like to learn more about? Let me know by messaging me on Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter at Delgado Podcast. And if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please let me know by rating this show on iTunes and or leaving a comment. Your vote can help this show get more visibility. Thank you so much. Take care, and we'll chat next week.